Hello, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast where we go deep with scripture to help you learn more about being a disciple so that you can live life together this week and then come back and love God in worship as we focus on the same text this next Sunday and then go and lead your life following Jesus. I'm Pastor Melissa, and I am here with you for one more week in our Redefine series. And this week we're redefining humility. And we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Now, while we hope you read through the whole chapter each week, our focus text for this week is verses 9 through 14. So we're going to start reading together in verse 9. So if you have your Bible or Bible app and you are not currently driving, why don't you take a moment and follow along with me? Starting with verse 9 in Luke 18. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. I'm going to pause right here. Luke's author is really laying it out for us. You know, each time we get to a parable in this section of Luke, we usually get an indication of who Jesus is speaking to, who he wants to actually hear this story. Because our, our audience actually tells us a lot about what Jesus' overall intention with a parable is going to be. But in this instance, we don't technically get a defined audience. Based on our other readings in this gospel and based on the parable itself, once we read it, we would probably guess that the intended hearer is Pharisees. After all, aren't they the ones who were lovers of money a few weeks ago with the dishonest steward? And aren't they often the ones who are showed to be prideful and arrogant idolizers of the law? But the author here doesn't say Pharisees. The writer could have easily said Pharisees, does in many other instances in the Gospel of Luke, but chooses not to name a specific group in this particular instance. So, that might tell us that we're supposed to realize there's an intended broader audience this time. What we can determine from this setup to the story, though, is that we can anticipate that Jesus is doing something with this parable. There's also almost a spoiler as to the moral of the story in just this introductory statement. Chances are Jesus plans to confront arrogance and religious pride. In fact, the detail that there is not a specific group this is addressed to might indicate that we should all pay attention, as Pharisees are not the only group who can fall prey to religious ego and pridefulness. Now, I want to make a note that the, the, the descriptor that is used here, um, that they are those who, quote, looked on everyone with disgust, or maybe your translation says regarded with contempt. That phrase uh, in Greek is only used two other places in the gospel. Once again in Luke 23, verse 11, where Herod and his soldiers regard Jesus with disgust or contempt. And then again in the sequel to Luke's gospel in Acts um, chapter 4, verse 11, another time in reference to how Jesus is treated. So this linguistic connection means we can go ahead and assume that the recipients of this disgust can be identified with Jesus. And the parable is going to work some of this out. So in that case, let's keep going. Let's continue and read the actual parable. So we'll pick back up at verse 10. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance, 
he wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. So Jesus is setting up a parallel story here. Two men are going to the temple to pray. Both are headed to the same location, which tells us that both are religious. Otherwise, they wouldn't be going to pray at the temple. But then we diverge when Jesus shares their vocations. One, a Pharisee, who would be immediately recognized by the hearers and as an extremely religious figure. And the other, a tax collector, known for consorting with the Romans, handling their money, and then extorting money from the people. Now, it's no accident that the location for this encounter is at the temple either. By setting up these two men as divergent characters, the parable also places them in a location where their divergence would be clear. At the temple, social standing mattered, and physically where individuals stand um, tells you about their social standing. There were insiders and outsiders at the temple, and it was clear where each of these characters stands in this context because of where they stand in the temple. And so that sets us up for Jesus' overall theme in telling the story. And while setting the story up in the temple around two individuals, we also see that this story is set among other parables by the writer of Luke. We left the last chapter with a dramatic instruction around the coming of the kingdom and the Son of Man, and this chapter indicates who will include in benefiting from those events. Deeper dimensions of the picture that Jesus has been painting, especially as it relates to humanity. So our two images of humanity in this story, two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, are set up to teach us something about the characteristics of those who will be part of the kingdom. Let's look at each of these figures in our parable now. So first we get our Pharisee. And this is not a new characterization. This should feel very familiar. We have seen Pharisees throughout this and other Gospels, but we haven't necessarily met this particular one. So this is a particular Pharisee in a particular parable. We know thus far in Luke, Pharisees have been hostile towards Jesus. So we already have an opinion about what we are likely to see with this character. And from the very beginning, we start to see the opening statement of this story play out. The Pharisee chooses to stand by himself, which we know is characteristic of Pharisees, who liked to separate themselves from others to ensure their purity before God. And then, once he is sufficiently away from those who might make him unclean, the Pharisee begins in prayer. Now, he begins in the same way as that we will see the tax collector do, but just after the address of the prayer, it moves into first-person narrative. It may be a prayer that is on the surface about thanksgiving, but it is clearly framed in a self-serving attitude. The Pharisee prays to God to let God know how lucky God is to have such an impressive worshiper. We don't see any evidence of humility or contrition, just a prayer about how great he is and how much he tithes and fasts, although twice a week was more than required and did indicate extreme piety. But overall, we learn that the Pharisee sees his status before God as a result of his own actions. His prayer is about what he is doing. He only mentions God at the very beginning. And rather than be grateful for his blessings, he ends up coming off kind of smug. He is so pious that it drives him to actually show spite for others. 
Because in his mind, the world is divided into two groups of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. And thank goodness he has worked hard enough to be able to claim his spot among the righteous. Not like that tax collector over there. But what about that tax collector? So let's take a look at his profile. Now, the term tax collector would have meant a lot to first century hearers, but we need a little more context to fully grasp the gravity of the comparison in this story. You know, first century tax collectors are not an equivalent to the IRS. They were individuals who bid on contracts to collect taxes in the different provinces of the Roman Empire. They agreed to collect a certain amount from each province that they were over and deposit it into the Roman treasury. And anything over the amount they collected, they kept. So it was really up to them how they, they got this amount back to the Roman leadership. So the more they could extort from the people, the richer they got. Now, often tax collectors were foreigners, those who didn't have relationships with the local community, and they also often hired henchmen to actually perform their collections. Generally, the public understanding of tax collectors is that they are greedy politicians since their business is dependent on taking advantage of people. And even though they were people with power, their work makes them social outcasts. And so when we find this particular tax collector in the temple, he is standing far off, not to separate himself for purity, as we just saw with the Pharisee, but in the location assigned to him as a less welcome member of the community. He's already taking a posture that implies humility before we even hear his prayer. And then we discover that his prayer sounds quite different from the Pharisee's prayer. Instead of um, about what he has done that makes him worthy, the tax collector confesses his unworthiness before God. He acknowledges his misdeeds and he asks for God's mercy. His prayer is one you actually might recognize. It's often referred to as the Jesus prayer in some of our prayer traditions. And uh, we see similar actions like um, beating his chest, showing up in other characters later in the gospel and throughout Christian history and practice. In this prayer, he repeats the prayer of Psalm 51. He asks for mercy, but he specifically adds the confession of being a sinner to the end of the prayer. We see that he is self-aware and repentant. And we've heard that term elsewhere in the gospel, haven't we? Sinners. We hear sinners often grouped with tax collectors as the objects of Pharisees grumbling and contempt. But we know that in every instance, they are characters of hope, <laughs> as are sinners. So we can get on the indication, uh, we can get the indication that this man is about to be saved by God's grace, just like the prodigal was, just like the lost sheep and the lost coin. And he is, of course. Because all he has energy for is to simply come and ask for mercy from God. <laughs> He's as desperate as he is humble. Life is too challenging to spend energy dividing people into groups, unlike the Pharisees' approach to the world. All he knows is that he needs God's grace and God's mercy. And nothing more is said about the tax collector because his prayer says it all. We don't know if his repentance was followed by right behavior, but that isn't actually the point of the story. So we have these two individuals. Jesus has set up this comparative uh, narrative for us. And so what do we do with it? What do we glean from it? 
Well, a few key learnings from this parallel story. First, we know that both characters are seeking justification. The Pharisee is doing it by trying to exalt himself to it, and the tax collector by humbling himself to God. But the Pharisee doesn't seem to get that he's missing the point, both with his relationship with God as well as the opportunity for relationship with the tax collector. As one commentator put it, the Pharisee had enough religion to be virtuous, but not enough to be humble. And as a result, his religion drove him away from the tax collector rather than toward him. The Pharisee's pride is not only the warning we have here. We also have to hear the warning of his specific disdain for the tax collector, exemplified through both his words and his actions. This comparison of humility and exaltation probably sounds familiar, as does the idea of distance between those who should be sharing a table. Because in Luke 14, we got the same concepts of humbled and exalted in our banquet stories, right? And now we've seen almost exactly this posturing for position play out in the temple. But here's where it gets a little tricky, and doesn't it always with Jesus? Because it's easy to see this story as a lifting up of the tax collector and a bringing down of the Pharisee, you know, that leveling that Luke's writer always does. And that's a valid and important aspect of the story, so we don't want to lose it. But that simplicity can also be a trap for us as readers and hearers. Because if you really read the parable, there's not necessarily a judgment placed on either character. There are framing statements, um, but they don't necessarily specify either of these characters. Because even framing ourselves as like the tax collector or like the Pharisee, isn't that exactly what we just condemned the Pharisee for doing? Did we, in reading this parable and exalting the tax collector, condemn the Pharisee? and thus just turn the tables to do the same thing the Pharisee is criticized here for doing. Because what this parable also tells us is that as soon as we believe we've found ourselves on the right side of something and others are on the wrong side, it's that side that Jesus is going to show up on, on the other side of the line we've just drawn. Our learning from Jesus here is not to be humble like the tax collector and unlike the Pharisee. It's simply to be focused on God and to resist the need to create in and out groups, to simply be ready to receive God's mercy and grace from a position of openness to it. Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you, a sinner, and all of us sinners who always find ourselves on the wrong side of the line because that's always where Jesus is going to show up. And he's probably going to tell a story there too. So I wonder how this week that is going to redefine humility for us. Humility.